Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. Hey everyone, welcome back to Future Work, and I can say that you are truly in for a treat today as we are joined by Dror Poleg, an economic historian who is researching technology's impact on the way people work and live. Dror is the author of Rethinking Real Estate, an award-winning book that predicted the current reshuffle of offices, homes, and cities. His insights have been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and many more. And Dror now also writes a weekly newsletter called Rethinking Work that I highly recommend that packs insights on the evolution of companies, cities, and careers, and it's already reaching over 25,000 investors, creators, entrepreneurs. Welcome, Dror. Hi, Dan. Great to be here. Great to have you here. And Dror, I just mentioned your first book, Rethinking Real Estate. Many of what we are seeing happening in the market right now, you predicted a few years ago. I don't know how you did it. You're now authoring a new book called After Office. Can you give our listeners an idea of what that's about? Sure. So, you know, the world around us, particularly in the developed countries, but I think even in places like Vietnam and then, of course, the large cities of Asia, the world around us is really designed around offices. So, you know, they dominate our skyline. So they seem, when you look at it like an alien, you already see that, okay, this must be the most important thing for this civilization because they have these big office buildings in the center of their cities and countries. But it actually dictates everything else we do. It dictates the rest of the design of our cities. So they're designed for commuters, for people that are coming into work. The businesses there are designed for people that are, you know, in an office, nine to five. Our education schedules and our personal schedules are also designed around the office schedule. And even before we're old enough to work, our schools are designed to prepare us for work at the office, both in terms of the schedule and how we wake up and how they're structured and how we sit and the type of tasks that we do and the type of patience and kind of uh, following (laughs) following instructions, kind of uh, teaching that they're trying to instill in us. And then when we're too old to work, when we retired, we're also dependent on offices because a lot of our pension fund money is invested in office buildings that are supposed to give us this kind of very stable dividend or income every month because they have very stable rent or at least used to have. So this, of course, was not always like this. So, you know, before offices were the center of the universe, we had factories who were the center of the universe. And before that, we had farms that were the center of the universe, and really all of life was organized around them. And what my book is about is trying to think what happens to the world once offices are no longer at the center. So not when offices don't exist, because even factories and farms still exist, and they're still important, but they don't dominate our landscape and our culture. So to try to think what happens when the same thing happens to offices. So how do our cities change? How do our schedules change? How does the structure of corporations change? How does the idea of a career and, you know, what do you even do with your time and how you plan for retirement and how you manage risk changes? What are all these implications? Incredible. So this is definitely something to look forward to. And some of your subscribers have already received some of the initial chapters. Um, so I can highly recommend for people to also take the subscribe, take the paid membership and get those chapters ahead of time and read along. And I definitely think that in the many episodes of the podcast we've recorded, this is definitely the first time someone has meant aliens and how they will look at our world. So I think we're off to a good start. So you mentioned that, you know, offices play a really central part in our lives. 
and that may change. So what are some of the changes that you foresee in the uh, after office world? So we're starting to see already that, I mean, that offices are becoming a little less important. So more and more uh, corporations are either letting their people not come to the office at all or only come for two or three days a week. And the focus is starting to shift away. And even that, even though it doesn't look like a very dramatic change to us because, you know, the office is still there, or at least a lot of it is still there, suddenly people can start making different choices. So they can live a little farther away, or in some cases, much farther away. So the structure of the city starts to change. In addition, they can start doing other things during at least two or three days of their week in terms of how, you know, they plan their schedule. So the time that they spend with their kids, the type of education that they give their kids, the type of healthcare that they consume, the type of hobbies that they take up. Like one of the funny things here in the US is that suddenly golf courses have become very popular during the week, which in the past would happen only during weekends. So people are starting to take up all sorts of new activities very differently. And in turn, the cities have to respond because now a lot of the businesses at the center of the city, which assumed you know, kind of a rush hour at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day and kind of a very stable and predictable stream of people during work days are also starting to change and to become much more of like weekend type businesses that cater to tourists or the people that show up occasionally. And the composition of those businesses is changing. So, you know, from people who fix shoes and, you know, polish shoes and, <laughs> and then do dry cleaning for people to maybe other things that are not necessarily built around office workers. So we're starting to see this beginning. I mean, we, we can talk about it for hours, but this is the start. And gradually, I think we'll see cities transformed more into places where people live than to places where people work. Now, of course, today already a lot of people live in cities, but the cities are designed to prioritize the offices and the people who come into them. And I think we'll see a kind of a, a reversal of that where cities will be prioritized as a place to live. And based on the assumption that people don't have to be there unless they choose to. So they don't have a job to go to or an office to go to that forces them to live nearby or to come in every day. But the city will have to become more of like a consumer product, like a thing that or a place that has to be attractive enough to attract people every day. And to offer those type of things and experiences that only a real city can offer, which means, you know, a diversity of retail, a diversity of culture, walkability. So the changes will be really fundamental and going way beyond the offices. I think that's really interesting. One of the things that I picked up from your writing that was really new to me was this idea of if you don't have to be in the office, therefore you don't have to live in a city, you actually start to see people making changes in where they live um, and that's very freeing because I think we are kind of hostage to the city in a way. So this kind of change in cities is another really interesting aspect of this kind of future of work. Another thing you touched on is remote and the ability that we now have to spend a few days a week not in the office and working more along our own schedule. And, you know, we've seen time and time again, the benefits are very clear. There's increased productivity, there's increased engagement, well-being goes up, employee retention goes up. But somehow, there are still some CEOs against it. We even saw very recently the CEO of OpenAI say that startups shouldn't offer remote work anymore because somehow we can only collaborate and do magic in person. Although, ironically, in that very same article, towards the end of the article, he said that some of their best people live far away and they totally work remote. What is it that makes company leaders still want to get people back into an office? So one, I think that whatever any company decides to do, 
is completely fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think the world we're headed to and the world we're already in actually over the past two, three years is a world where employees and companies and bosses have just much more choice in terms of the available options, in terms of how they want to work. And a world in which they probably have to experiment all the time. And even those experiments are not going to lead to a very clear answer where they're just going to say, okay, before we we're all at the office, now we're just going to be four days at the office or, or some other clear answer. I think it will just be an ongoing experiment that will include much more diversity. So, you know, if the CEO of OpenAI, who is currently really trying to reinvent the wheel, thinks that his team should all be in the same place, that's fine with me. And, and actually, it makes sense. I think if you can have all the people that you need in the same room every day and they're all engaged and excited and productive, wonderful. It's just that in many cases... That's not what happens. One, because as you mentioned, even with OpenAI, some of the people that you need are not within driving distance to the office. And if you really want to match the best specialized talent to the very specific tasks that you're trying to do and things you're trying to accomplish, most likely you will have to hire people that are you know, remote or somewhere else, at least some of the time. And, and we're seeing that even with OpenAI. Second, to do that over time, I mean, OpenAI is a very new company and very small company. So it's very easy at the beginning, 20 or 50 or 100 people who are very excited about what's going on for a year to keep that level of engagement. But once you have to employ 5,000 or 10,000 people and to keep hiring, you very quickly realize that by limiting yourself to only one city, you're basically paying a very, very high price in terms of recruitment and in terms of matching talent to tasks. And also in terms of maintaining that engagement of employees over time, you also realize that actually, you know, people are happy to, you know, work like soldiers on something for a year or a few months. But after a few years, they have to start balancing other things in their lives, which again, their family, their time, control over their schedule. So I think very quickly you see how remote suddenly becomes important again. Ultimately, I think there are structural reasons why companies are becoming more flexible and more dependent on remote, and, and I'm happy to dive into those. Yeah, defi definitely. Let's get into that a little bit. Uh, it sounds like you know there are different models that work for different stages of companies, maybe different industries. What are some other kind of factors that play into, you know, what would work for one company that wouldn't work for another? You know, in the past, let's say the industrial world, which is what we, we keep comparing everything to as a benchmark. If you take the, the like 1950 as the, the epitome of the industrial world, companies were industrial, which meant that they had a very linear production process, which meant, you know, you put more stuff into the machine and then more stuff comes out. You know, we have more labor, we have more resources, which means we can produce more. And the fact that we can produce more probably means that we're going to sell more because there's not a lot of other alternatives. You know, it wasn't so easy to make the stuff that we were consuming, you know, the washing machines, the TVs, all of that were, were new and hard to produce. And also marketing was much simpler because there were only one or two TV channels. So you knew that if you could make the car or the washing machine, you would buy ads on the TV and 70 or 80% of the people of your customers would watch those ads and then they would buy your stuff. And, you know, maybe you had two or three competitors, but overall, probably most of you were, were doing well. And, and again, and even that was hard enough for businesses, but that's how it was. 
Today, we're increasingly moving into a world of nonlinear production, which means it's much harder even for companies themselves to actually know what works and what doesn't work. It's no longer just about, you know, let's throw more resources at something and then we'll sell more because we're seeing wherever we look that you might have a team of 10 people that achieve something that another team of 10,000 people cannot achieve. It's most notable in the world of media and social networks where, you know, some person uploads a viral video and then they get 2 billion views while at the same time, you know, a studio can invest $400 million in something, lose money. But it's true in all other consumer products. We have an abundance of almost everything in the world. It's very easy today to go on Alibaba and to just get a washing machine. But then the challenge is how do you market it? How do you stand out? So we're increasingly dependent on those dynamics that are nonlinear and out of control. So companies basically today are struggling to predict their own needs in terms of headcount. Uh, when they think ahead, you know, 10 years or even two years, it's very hard for them to know how many people am I going to require? What are these people going to do? Which part of the world are they going to be in? So from the demand side, that whole notion of signing a 10-year lease and having that stability is no longer there. So, you know, 50 years ago, maybe it was the interest of the landlord and of the tenant to have a long lease. Both of them wanted that certainty and, and had enough information to make those type of decisions. But today... From the tenant side, even with all the goodwill in the world, they just don't know what they need. So that's one thing. The second thing is our work is becoming increasingly specialized and increasingly dependent on knowledge as opposed to, you know, manual labor or working in a factory. And once work becomes specialized, it benefits much more from what I mentioned earlier, which is this idea of talent matching, of really matching with the exact person with the exact skill set that enables them to do the thing that you need them to do. And here too, we see that the right person at the right place can make all the difference in the world, which is not the same thing in the industrial world. So, you know, in a factory, if you take one employee or 10 employees, the 10 employees will do 10 times more work and produce 10 times more than the one employee. But in the world of creative thinking, a thousand people trying to sing like a Freddie Mercury are not going to sing like one Freddie Mercury. A thousand people trying to come up with something like Steve Jobs are not going to come up with a single iPhone, no matter how much time they spend on it. It's a world of nonlinear dynamics. And often it's not even possible to know who that person is, you know, who Steve Jobs is before he becomes Steve Jobs, which means that you have to hire from a much larger pool of candidates and you have to try to make those matches that are very specific to make sure that you have a person who is like really the best possible person for that specific job and that can only be achieved if you're hiring not just from a single city but from you know a whole country or the whole world and since that is the case it no longer makes sense to limit yourself to a single office you know only hires from one region even before COVID, we started to see the largest companies and the most innovative companies in the world. So Amazon, Spotify, Stripe, Facebook, Apple, start to open those R&D centers all over the world, basically splitting their headquarters into multiple parts. These were not regular branches. They didn't open those offices in order to sell to the local market. They opened those offices in order to hire from the local market, basically telling us that, hey, Ideally, I would like all my people to be in one place, but it's actually more important to me to hire from more places in order to tap into that broader 
talent pool. And I think these two forces, one, these kind of nonlinear dynamic and the need for matching over a large pool of candidates, only going to become more important as work becomes even more creative, more abstract, uh, less industrial. So that obviously then leads to another big topic that we got to tech. Are you ready to switch gears a little bit? Sure. Okay. So we got to go to AI. So you talked about, you know, work becoming more creative, work becoming more uh, specialized to the person. That's a lot of the promise that we've been hearing about AI. AI can do kind of our mundane tasks. It can do our menial work so that we can do what we're truly good at as people. You recently wrote a really interesting article that actually links the two topics we just talked about. So remote work on one side and the other. I have a few questions about that. But before I ask those, are you okay to share a little bit about what is AI and why do people suddenly care about it so much? Yeah, so, you know, artificial intelligence, the kind of the effort to make computers think like humans, people have been working on it for a long time, depending how you count, but let's say at least 70 years uh, Uh, doing it in earnest. And over the last year in particular, there seems to have been some major advances on that front, most visible with a product called ChatGPT, which is basically just a chatbot that you can talk to. But when you start chatting with it, very quickly you realize that this thing behaves very differently from any computer that you interacted with. In the past, it speaks like a human, it understands things in context, and you can really have a conversation with it and kind of refine ideas and go back to things that you told it before. And it's also just very, very good at doing certain things. Like you can really treat it like an intern or like an employee and tell it, okay, summarize this, rewrite that, type some code that does one specific action, take this whole document and turn it into a presentation. You can really see that it's starting to do interesting things. And today there's a lot of hype about, okay, how will this impact the workforce? And also, how are individual people already using it to really scale their time, to become much more productive, and to automate a lot of yeah menial and kind of repetitive tasks, but also to really supercharge their creativity as well. So to come up with really cool new things and to turn their ideas into reality much faster. Right. And one of the things that you mentioned is that the more that we work digitally, the more that AI can take over those those menial parts of our job. And does that then mean that this can become some kind of like a flywheel where AI on the one side and remote work on the other side can, can fuel each other? Since COVID and up until five minutes ago, everyone was talking about remote work as the big shift in the world of work. Now, in the last few months, everybody's talking about AI suddenly and saying, oh, forget remote work. AI is the next big thing that's going to, you know, eliminate jobs or automate them. Or, uh, we should talk about that. But actually, these two topics are very, very much related and they work together. So the way I see it, the remote work revolution over the past three years actually set the scene or prepared the ground for AI's kind of <laughs> entrance uh, in a big time into the workplace. And it did so in a few ways. So, you know, when work goes remote, it also goes digital, which means that people are no longer communicating in person, but they're communicating via all sorts of chat apps and, you know, video calls and online collaboration tools, you know, from Slack to Google Docs to Airtable and Notion and whatever it is that you're working on. And also work becomes asynchronous because people collaborate over different time zones, 
they don't necessarily collaborate through, you know, ongoing conversations or calls or meetings. They just kind of do their work and then deliver it and then they get judged based on what they actually delivered. Now, this created a perfect breeding ground for AI because now that AI is good enough, it actually can plug into these processes very seamlessly because, you know, if we were all working in offices and speaking to each other, it would have been very hard for a chatbot to jump into the meeting. And, you know, we, had, we would have had to change all of our workflows for that. But now, since our workflows are already digital and they happen in the cloud, it's very easy to just plug AI into them and, you know, add it into our Slack group or connect it to our Google Doc or tap into an API that does stuff to our material that is already digitized and in the cloud. So it made it much easier for AI to make an impact from day one and really connect into our existing workflows without us having to uh, make any drastic changes. And this flywheel actually continues because now AI is making online collaboration even more effective. And it's making a digital presence much more realistic. So it allows us now to create much richer avatars of our faces and our voices and collaborate more richly on digital tools. We're already seeing the emergence of that, which in turn would make it much easier for humans to work remotely, which means that more humans and more digital collaboration will move online, which will make it even easier for AI to <laughs> go and kind of start affecting even bigger chunks of the work we do. So I see it as a flywheel that I think over the next 10 years is going to intensify and will make work much more dependent on artificial intelligence and at the same time, much more distributed and much more kind of digitized and cloud-based. Yeah, I mean, to me, so so I read that post and I'll link it in the show notes. Like that was such a fascinating kind of notion because I was so focused on both of these topics and thinking about what would the link there be. And I think, you know, just to highlight something you just said, if we're all sitting in an office having conversations, it's really hard for AI to deliver value there because, you know, those conversations aren't online. But if, you know, I use Fireflies and some of my team has other meeting bots that will like join online meetings that will transcribe that will send summaries within 10 minutes after the meetings that will give us the to do's for the next meeting. You know, I saw Slack is now launching their GPT, which can then tell you which conversations you missed and what you should be paying attention to. All of that stuff isn't possible in an office together working together. So the two really, really fuel each other. Is there then also some kind of a risk that I remember the CEO of Zillow called you know, called out the risk of a two-class system where the people in the office versus the people remote have very different kind of experience and maybe even opportunities. Is it going to be that, like, you know, things that are happening in the office are going to be even more separated from the things that are happening online? Is there any risk there? Yeah, I think there's definitely a risk there. I'm not sure which of those groups is actually going to benefit. I mean, we assume that those at the office are going to kind of... Uh, get accelerated and get promoted and, and have more access to the boss. But often the bosses themselves are not at the office, which is part of the problem. A lot of the, the theory assumes that younger people benefit more from going to the office because they can get mentored and they can learn. But actually those younger people are those that are least interested in coming to the office at the same time. So, so there's definitely a lot of management challenges. Again, I don't see a, a simple solution to them. I think companies will have to continue to experiment. But that probably points to one, at least, partial solution, which is not to try to have a, a company-wide policy. I think it's more important for specific teams 
to define what works for them and you know how they would like to collaborate and to kind of uh, decentralize the, the learning processes and the management process itself. Because one of the consequences of what's happening now in offices you know, is also the fact that it's just harder to manage companies centrally. But this is not just because people are not coming to the office, but also because of the changing network nature of work itself. I think in the industrial world, Work was much more hierarchical. It was easier to plan things, to tell everyone what to do, and for that process to actually produce anything useful. I think today we're increasingly relying on multiple small teams or even individuals doing all sorts of random stuff and ultimately kind of seeing what actually works and you know which product is the winner and, and what seems to, to have an impact. And I think a lot of bosses are struggling to adapt to that type of world. They're not sure what their role is in that type of world. They're still holding on to that like need to control or need to like feel like they're in charge and that their kind of instructions cause things to happen. Well, in reality, I think we're increasingly managing creative people and artists. So, I mean, we have to inspire them. We have to give them an environment where they can do their best work, but we can't tell them exactly what to do or how to do it at any given moment. And, you know, some companies are doing it better than others. I just read about Airbnb, you know, first they finally became profitable this year. So the results are there. But also, I think a year or two ago, they basically told employees that they can live wherever they want and work out of wherever they want. And people are loving it because it's not just an office policy, but it's really, you know, it's in the DNA of the whole company, that idea of like, we're all citizens of the world. You can create your own lifestyle. Let's figure out what works best for you. And as long as, you know, you figure out with your team how to be productive, then we as a company are happy about it. And one of the things that they described is that in, you know, a few years ago, 95% of their employees lived within commuting distance to the office. And now about a quarter of them live much farther away uh, than that. Plus, they have more offices in other parts of the world. So even people that live near the office are now living in all sorts of regions that five or 10 years ago were basically regions where Airbnb was not hiring and you couldn't get a good tech job. And now you can. So again, just such a fascinating example of how the policies of our companies and the cities that are taking us hostage determine so much of what we do. The moment that you tell people you can live anywhere, a quarter of your workforce moves to other places. Just incredible. I think we could talk, of course. Yeah. And, and I will point out, I mean, you live in an amazing city in Ho Chi Minh. And people love cities. So I'm not saying everyone's going to run away. I'm actually, you know, if more high paid people are going to be able to work from anywhere, more of them will want to live in New York and in London and in the big cities in Asia, just because those cities are so cool to live in. But you know, you don't have to be a, <laughs> a captive of them for your work. Other people on earth that would want to live there, if you move out, someone will take your apartment and be happier. And maybe you want to live somewhere else. I'm sure the residential and landlords in New York uh, will love to hear that. I was just going to say, we talk forever, but I see that we're almost at the end of our time. One actually quite big topic uh, that links a lot to what you were just saying about how, how the, the nature of work has changed is this topic of productivity. Uh, sorry to mention the P word, but uh, you know it's a big one, right? And, and I think you also recently referenced uh, the CEO of Clearlink who in one speech both commended someone for selling their family dog to move back to the office 
and said that we all should be 30 to 50 times more uh, effective because AI can now enable us to do much more work. But yeah, this this theme of productivity is really coming up a, a lot. What what is your take on on measuring productivity and whether people are more productive at home or in the office or both? Again, I don't think there's a clear answer anymore. Uh, we're not in a factory, and we're not even in like you know a, a call center or some kind of a administrative office of uh, of the 1970s or 1980s. More and more of the work we do is just very very hard for us to predict and to measure. Not just for our bosses, but for us ourselves. You know, I you know I I do very creative work. I write, and some days I sit down and within 30 minutes I write 5,000 words that are amazing. And then I spend four days banging my head against the wall in order to write 500 words about something else. After two months, sometimes of researching something, it's complete crap and nobody cares about it. Well, some other thing that I tweeted in two minutes suddenly gets a million views and is much more you know, beneficial for me financially than the thing I spent a lot of time on. And that's just normal life. It's a very kind of schizophrenic <laughs> and crazy process. But I think it's increasingly true for a lot of other people. And when you ask bosses, even, even at the office, even before COVID, even before remote work, some of the largest companies in the world, if you ask their HR departments and even their real estate departments that try to predict how much office space they need, how do they measure productivity and how do they kind of assess the impact of different changes that they made in terms of, uh, again, employment procedures or office design or schedules? Most of the time, it boils down to actually running surveys and asking employees whether they feel more productive. It's already not very scientific. And of course, what employees tell you, they themselves have no idea uh, whether they are more productive or not. They just can tell you how they feel. And now with remote work, it gets even trickier because you don't even see the employees. You can't even pretend that you're managing them or that you know exactly what they're doing at any given moment. So, so it's really hard. I think my advice would be to let go and to try a completely different approach. Again, like empowering people to make their choices, judging them based on output over time, not like every day, you know, how many lines of code did you write or how many letters did you, how off, how long was your laptop open and the specific window on it was, you know, were you looking at it? But really, you know, over time to see whether people are actually generating or bringing the goods that you expect them to bring, but not to get too hung up on, on the specific process. It seems that in terms of productivity, there, there just needs to be more conversation between employees and managers and between managers and leadership about what productivity is and what does good work look like for, for someone. I saw a recent ClickUp study that talked about one of the main challenges with productivity being that for most employees, um, they say, I feel productive when I feel that I've accomplished something. Um, whereas managers look at output, they look at, uh, you know, like, how long were you online? What, what laptop screen did you have open, right? So if you have a fundamental misunderstanding between those two parties, then obviously, you're never going to figure it out. So it's one of the main topics, I think, that will continue to spark some debate and, and really looking forward to reading more of your writing on it. And we'll, we'll obviously link to all of your website, your LinkedIn in the show notes. Um, so as we're at the end now, just one final question. Is there any one thing you want to leave people with, something you want people to remember you for, one piece of wisdom, one wish for humanity you would put on a billboard? Oh, I don't know if it's a wish for humanity, but I think it's a very important trend that we haven't spoken about. I call it the rise of the scalable class. I think unlike in any time in history, 
a single human being today has more power to achieve basically whatever they want than ever before, which means whatever idea you have, you can now become as big as the corporations of 100 years ago just on your own with the help of AI, with the help of the Internet. And, and it can be in any field, whether you're building software or writing poetry or designing things or giving advice or teaching. Suddenly, we can all become scalable in terms of how we use space and time. Like those constraints don't apply to us anymore, which on the one hand is wonderful. But on the other hand, it means that we're moving into a world where there's going to be some really, really big winners. And where just being in the middle is no longer going to be such a great option. So, you know, we're all either going to be competing against everyone else on Earth, providing exactly the same service, or we're going to be superstars that are somehow pulling ahead and differentiated. If in the past our parents told us, you know, aim for the middle, go study something boring just like everyone else, and, you know, worst case, you'll still have a stable job and you'll buy a house and you'll have a reasonable income, I think that option is increasingly uh, less and less available. So we all have to double down on what makes us unique. And the good news and the bad news is that it's not very clear what will be considered a productive job in 10 years or in 20 years, which means that we just have to experiment and probably we have to tap into whatever it is that only we can do. And that's usually not like a skill that we're born with, but a combination of things, you know, our experiences, our interests, uh, the places we've been, the friends that we have, basically taking all of these together and trying to create something that is unique, that ultimately gives you a voice that uh, resonates with other people that are like you. And it doesn't have to be with a million or a billion people. It's enough that it will be with a hundred people or a thousand people, but that your specific voice and expertise is very relevant to them. I think they'll be willing to pay a premium for it. So don't be afraid to explore and don't try to aim for the middle and to kind of be boring or to follow the laws of the 1950s because they're probably not going to get you too far. Uh, so maybe the, the bottom line of it is that in order to have a chance to succeed now, we have to take much more risk than we ever did. But at the same time, if we take those risks, the rewards are bigger than they ever were. And often it's not very expensive to try. You know, to write something, to post it online, to email someone, to build something. It's so cheap today that you can do it again and again and again and again. And maybe one of those uh, attempts. I couldn't wish for a more beautiful note to end this podcast on. So, Jor, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for sharing all your insights. Again, we'll link to all your platforms in the show notes and really encourage people to uh, hit the follow button to uh, get the book or pre-order the book. Um, and and see what else you have to share with us. So thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Dan. And I hope I can visit you and see you in person one day soon. That would be wonderful. <laughs>